Focus on Headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio on this Thursday is the Sochi sisters and Soa and uh, Chihi. Guys, welcome back. Good to Good. see you guys. Good evening. evening. Caught you off guard with that little extra <laughs> comment there, huh? Well, we're going to start things off with domestic economy, guys. Uh, Korea Central Bank uh, decided to freeze its key interest rate for the eighth consecutive time. Uh, not so surprising there amid uh, continued inflationary pressure and weak domestic spending. So, are you going to start us off? Uh, give us the latest results from the Bank of Korea earlier today. All right. Uh, the Bank of Korea has kept its key interest rate at 3.5%, continuing its freezing trend for the eighth straight time as the decisions were made at the policy rate sessions in February, April, May, July, August, October, and November last year, and then today, January 2024. That meaning the base rate has stood at 3.5% for basically an entire year now. Prior to to that, the BOK raised the rate for seven consecutive sessions from April 2022 to January 2023. Thursday's decision at the BOK's first Monetary Policy Committee meeting this year was widely expected as there are mixed signs to South Korea's economy. While exports have been recovering in recent months, consumer spending has not, as inflation is easing at a slower pace than previously expected. And also other factors such as uh, rising household debt as well as uh, real estate project financing risks are also being closely monitored as they all have potential to further lead to weak domestic demand. In a statement, the BOK hinted that the restrictive policy stance will be maintained until there are more certain signs of reduced inflationary pressure. So we're likely to see a few more freezes. However, with the BOK Governor Lee Chang-yong saying today that possible rate cuts are unlikely to be discussed for at least six months, by the third quarter there may be changes. According to Lee, the need for an additional hike is lower than before due, quote, due to the, quote, underlying trend of moderating inflation and eased woes over oil prices and geopolitical risks. The U.S. Federal Reserve's next moves are also expected to play some role in Korea's further decisions. The current rate gap between Korea and the U.S. remains at two percentage points. Yeah, again, we talked about how uh, what's really important is what the U.S. Fed is going to do, right? And uh, it seems like the consensus is that the U.S. Fed will also uh, keep its rates frozen uh, for the time being here. And if you've seen uh, some, I think we mentioned this yesterday in our program during uh, Focus on Headline, what the World Bank expects the global growth rate to be, and I believe the United States stands at something like 1.6%, uh, which is very, very low compared to some of the other uh, major economies. And so considering that, uh, I think despite the the, you know, the inflation levels not hitting their 2% target as they expected, uh, the global, uh, what is it, the, the country's uh, global, uh, economic slowdown is probably going to freeze the rates for the time being. And of course, uh, Jerome Powell also hinted 
that uh, a cut in the rates won't come in the first quarter of the year. Let's talk about another uh, major issue that could potentially have a major repercussion in the country's real estate market, not to mention just the economy as a whole. Creditors meeting uh, set for today decided to decide on the launch of Taeyong Group's debt workout program. Now, the group needs to secure a certain percentage of approval from the creditors to start the debt restructuring process. Gee, you have more on this. Right. So the parent company of Taeyong Engineering and Construction, Taeyong Group, has announced that it will pledge its entire stake in SBS and TY Holdings as collateral to secure liquidity. Uh, this was earlier this week, and this move is in response to demands for a higher level of self-rescue plan due to Taeyong Engineering and Construction's current debt problems. Now, the ownership family of Taeyong Group has added new measures to the initial plans by offering the holdings as collateral if needed. Now, the Korea Development Bank, which is the main creditor of Taeyong ENC, held the first meeting of creditors today to decide whether to initiate a workout through a vote in written form. And the creditors can express their intentions by email or fax by midnight. Uh, that's today, and the group will need to secure 75% approval from the creditors to kick off the debt restructuring process. The KDB and banks hold about 33% stake. However, considering other financial authorities, such as the subsidiaries of local financial holding companies and the Korea Housing and Urban Guarantee Corporation, who have direct and indirect influence, it's speculated that the 75% approval will easily be achieved. Now, the Taeyong Group and Taeyong ENC will finance the necess necessary funds for a high-level self-rehabilitation plan until a corporate improvement plan is formulated. Now, earlier, though, there were concerns that a workout plan could be canceled due to a disagreement between TY Group and the creditors. Uh, the dispute was related to whether the entire charge from the sell-off of Taeyong industry should be used to support Taeyong ENC. However, under pressure from financial authorities and creditors, Taeyong Group invested 89 billion won, uh, the remaining balance of the sale price of the industry into Taeyong Construction. And additionally, the group implemented further self-rescue measures such as financing its affiliates. Yeah, and this is what the creditors uh, were calling for Taeyong Group to do first, is to find maybe self-rescue measures first, and then mm -hmm. if it's not enough, then uh, get assistance from the creditors. And if you look at it again, you know, the investors are are usually quicker to this than any other news. And if you look at the uh, the Taeyong construction, uh, engineering and construction uh, stock prices, it actually had gone up 18, over 18% 18 uh, today. If you look at numbers uh, throughout the past week, it's been skyrocketing. If you look at numbers, uh, mm. just kind of looking at the graph here from uh, three months, uh, starting in, two th uh, was it uh, December 2000, sorry, December 28th was when it hit rock bottom on the news that it might go bankrupt. And then after that, it's been climbing up quite a bit to now the highest it went was 4,110.1, which means that there is rescue measures in place and the guy, the, the team, uh, the company is not going to hit rock bottom. And so at least on that, some optimistic news here. However, things don't look so rosy when it comes to the overall debt here in the country. Uh, South Korea's national debt reached almost 1,110 trillion won. 
or you could say 1.11 quadrillion won if you use like mm-hmm. to use that. Uh, this is as the end of November last year. So uh, big figures here. Uh, tell us more about this. Right. According to data released by the Ministry of Economy and Finance this Thursday, South Korea's national debt came to 1,109.5 trillion won, or roughly 845 billion U.S. dollars, as of the end of November last year. That's up 4 trillion won, or roughly 3 billion dollars from a month before. The fiscal deficit or budget deficit meanwhile showed an on-month growth. The government estimates the national debt for the whole year of 2023 to hit 1,101.7 trillion won or $839 billion. The managed fiscal balance, which is a key barometer of fiscal health, posted a deficit of 65.9 trillion won or $50.2 billion dollars through November, which is up from 52.2 trillion and one a month earlier, surpassing the government's projection of 58.2 trillion won this year, uh, or last year, I should say, 2023. These figures have been worsening in the past year and are looking to worsen further. As just a few weeks ago, the country's finance ministry had predicted Korea's fiscal deficit to increase to nearly 4% of GDP in 2024. Also, earlier last year, the IMF noted in a report that South Korea's national debt-to-GDP ratio is increasingly becoming a serious issue. Meanwhile, the t- government's total revenue from revenue from the January to November period was 542.2 trillion won, or roughly f- 413 billion U.S. dollars, and that's 42.4 trillion won less than the previous year, and that's uh, on the back of weak corporate performances and a slump in the property market. Overall spending decreased by 15.5% to 548.6 trillion won or 417.8 billion dollars during the same period due to fewer expenditures on pandemic-related subsidies and projects. If we were to look at figures uh, to make us a little bit feel a little bit better about the the growing debt that we're seeing here. I think South Korea is still way outside the top 10 when it comes to debt. Uh, uh, debt. Uh, obviously, the United States have mm. the largest amount at uh, something like $29 trillion is their debt. And uh, what's actually surprising is the fact that Japan has the second most when it comes to the figure. But when you look at it by GDP, comparison to the GDP, mm. Japan is 255.24%. Uh, which is very, very high here. And uh, South Korea is not even on the top 20 uh, when it comes to per GDP here. Uh, South Korean Japanese business leaders pledged to enhance collaboration in addressing shared challenges, uh, this including uh, climate change and declining populations. They also issued a joint statement uh, after the meetings there. Uh, Chief, tell us more about this. Sure. So the Federation of Korean Industries, or FKI, and the Japan Business Federation, the two leading economic organizations in South Korea and Japan, have agreed to strengthen cooperation in fostering startups. Now, they also agreed to establish a trilateral economic cooperation organization in line with trilateral government-to-government cooperation uh, and to push South Korea's accession to the uh, CPTPP. Now, the trilateral organization is amongst the U.S., South Korea, and Japan. The two economic organizations released a joint statement at the 30th Korea-Japan Joint Conference at Keidanran uh, Hall in Tokyo 
Japan this morning. And the statement said this event was held amid the continuation of the friendly bilateral relations fostered by the mutual visits of the two leaders last year and was the first to be held since the complete end of the bilateral export restrictions between the two states. Now, the recent meeting was divided into two sessions with a focus on economic affairs and the outlook of the two countries, as well as the promotion of bilateral cooperation for the realization of a sustainable society. Now, the two organizations also agreed to continue cooperation in key three areas, three key areas, including industry, the resolution of social issues and the international framework as well. And under these fields, the two countries will jointly seek ways to allow startups to discover new growth engines, as well as to work together on initiatives related to tourism and key minerals. They also touched upon social issues, including carbon neutrality, low fertility and aging. And they also, uh, once again, agreed on the need to establish a trilateral economic cooperation platform among South Korea, the United States and Japan. And as part of these efforts, the two organizations decided to evaluate the organization of a trilateral business summit uh, as well. And the joint statement also included uh, expanding cooperation on energy, hydrogen, and startup ecosystems. And during the meeting, uh, Chairman Liu Jinhan from KFI proposed to strengthen bilateral cooperation in next-generation technologies such as AI. And his Japanese counterpart, President Masakazu Tokuro, stated that Japan and South Korea have become indispensable partners for each other, and we must strengthen our cooperation to rebuild a free and open international economic order. We're going to switch gears to something very interesting that came out uh, earlier this morning. Uh, there were signs. You're kind of divided with two different groups of people. There is one group of people who believe that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency is the currency of the future, uh, whereas the other group believes that this is all a pyramid scheme and that uh, no one is going to be using Bitcoin come maybe 10 years down the road. Well, it's gotten quite close to the uh, side, uh, I guess the, the side that believes that cryptocurrency is going to be the currency of the future getting excited here because uh, the U.S. Securities Regulator, SEC, actually gave green light for the first U.S. listed exchange traded funds. Uh, this is, of course, ETF. I think that we're, we're more uh, familiar with this to track Bitcoin. Really a turning point for cryptocurrency as well as the industry as a whole. Uh, so uh, do share with us, and I guess you could give us a very unbiased look into this, <laughs> uh, considering that you have absolutely no interest whatsoever in trading <laughs> cryptocurrency. Tell us more about this. Are you sure about that? What? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, the Securities and Exchange Commission gave its approval on Wednesday for rule changes for a Bitcoin exchange traded funds in the U.S., a long-awaited move for investors. Gary Gensler, chair of the SEC, said in a statement, quote, today, the commission approved the listing and trading of a number of spot Bitcoin exchange traded product or ETP shares. The SEC approved 11 applications, including from BlackRock, ARK Investments, 21 shares, Fidelity, Invesco and Van Eck. This is a watershed moment for Bitcoin as well as the broader industry of cryptocurrency 
currency, which uh, is well known for its volatility. Uh, in fact, officials and investor advocates had warned of risks. The SEC chair also made clear, though, that despite the approval, it did not approve or endorse Bitcoin. Uh, in fact, uh, the statement said investors should remain cautious about the myriad risks associated with Bitcoin and products whose value is tied to crypto. Nevertheless, there are high expectations that Bitcoin investing will be more accessible now for Main Street investors from here on without making it necessary for them to own the assets directly. This is a milestone for leading virtual currency Bitcoin, which is celebrating its 15th anniversary this year. Uh, it is the oldest and most popular cryptocurrency. Bitcoin's value surged from $17,944 on January 12, 2023 free to $46,460 on January 11th, 2024, which is, of course, today. Uh, but uh, it also had an all-time high uh, back in November, November 10th, 2021, when the value was 68789 Yeah, I'm also, $68, yes. yeah, also celebrating 14 years since my <laughs> buddy called me and said, let's get into this thing called Bitcoin. And I said, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm not spending money on this. No, uh, it's pretty big actually i was looking at uh, the graph today uh, not just bitcoin but i think bitcoin over the past 24 hours has gone up something like four percent or something mm. like that which is huge considering the the market the market size there but all the other cryptocurrencies are also skyrocketing right now and i think the Probably. big thing moving forward is they're thinking if you look at it i don't know if anybody really uh, does a cryptocurrency trading but there's the, all the Ethereum-based uh, coins are skyrocketing at this time. This including Ethereum, Ethereum Classic. The reason for this is now they're saying now that Bitcoin got the ETF, now Ethereum could get its own ETF is what a lot of people are speculating. And even a lot of uh, Korean investment companies that could potentially list uh, Bitcoin ETFs have been skyrocketing in their stock prices too. So interesting stuff and uh, really an interesting period of time that we're living right now. But uh, still, I think there's a lot of people out there who are still uh, skeptical of this. But there was some fake news before this official announcement, though. What do you mean fake news? There was fake news that kind of uh, made Bitcoin prices go up and drop again uh, a few days earlier mm -hmm. uh, before this official announcement because their account got hacked. Mm -hmm. And some said that this was officially announced, mm -hmm. but it was fake news. Did you buy it or something? No, no, no. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> did you buy it on I the fake it. news? <laughs> I did not. I just heard. No, I, I just heard about some like fake ETFs that were going around. Oh. Uh, people buying fake ETFs, and there was oh. already people scamming uh, people of money with this. But uh, it's interesting that someone is obviously investing in <laughs> no, cryptocurrency right now. Uh, let's move on to domestic politics. It's going to get really interesting now, leading up to the April general elections, because uh, as anticipated, we we actually talked about this already. Uh, former head of the main opposition Democratic Party, Inagyan, is also the former prime minister uh, under the former Moon Jae-in administration. Uh, he did officially announce that he is going to leave the DP. Uh, this was made at the uh, the National Assembly's uh, communication hall earlier today. The big f question was whether or not after he leaves the party, if he's going to create his own party was all of this. And uh, he did share his plans moving forward. Gee, let's get the details of this. 
Sure. So Inagyeon announced his decision to form a new party with three other non-mainstream lawmakers who resigned from their party the previous day during a press conference held at the National Assembly earlier today. Now, the objective of this new alliance is to participate in the upcoming parliamentary elections in April. Well, Lee criticized the party for losing its value and decency and becoming a one-person party and a bulletproof party with violent and vulgar behavior and remarks. He expressed his pain in leaving the party he had been with for 24 years, which was once his home, but also stated that he would take a new path to serve South Korea in a new way from a new position. Uh, he, Lee, the prime minister in the previous Moon Jae-in administration, has recently made it clear that he's leaving his position since the leader of the Democratic Party, Lee Jae-myung, rejected his demands for reforms. Uh, and the two Lees were rivals in the presidential primaries, and their relationship has been strained since then. During the press conference, Lee announced his plan to join forces with three members of the uh, Democratic Party who had left the party the day before. And he believes that South Korea needs to move away from its entrenched two-party system and instead embrace a multi-party system. And he said he hopes to end the current animosity between the two main parties and instead foster a system of compromise and adjustment. And he called upon the people to lend their support to this initiative so that the April general elections could be the starting point for this new approach. Now, representatives Cho Eun-chan, Kim Jong-min, and Lee Won-uk are the ones who left the Democratic Party yesterday uh, after their demands for reform were rejected. And this was due to the prospect that they may not win party nominations in the upcoming parliamentary elections in April. Uh, political analysts are observing whether Inagyeon will merge with other minor parties, such as the one led by Lee Jun-seok, a former leader of the ruling People Power Party, ahead of the parliamentary elections. Uh, meanwhile, 129 Democratic lawmakers issued a statement against the defections, calling them fragmentary. And the three unaffiliated lawmakers who had already defected yesterday, like I said earlier, will announce their plans to form a new party tomorrow. Yeah, so that sort of group of four uh, were called, I believe, principles and common sense, mm, I believe, yes. right? They were like the, the non-mainstream uh, lawmakers from the DP and their so the, the so-called anti-Ejemyung faction, right? And I think, although we saw through a parliamentary vote against uh, on the uh, the arrest motion of uh, uh, DP leader Ejemyung, that there was a great deal of number of DP lawmakers who actually voted in favor of the arrest mo motion. They're silent with this, right? But these were the four uh, that came out openly. Although uh, three of them left the party, one decided that he was going to stay with the party here. So there's two little two options right now it will Inagyan form a completely new party with the three uh, so-called principle and common sense uh, members because Inagyan did say come out saying that the first thing he's gonna do is try to work with these three lawmakers right now or just like Chihi mentioned and a lot of the political pundits are saying is there going to be a collaboration between the two former party leaders in Lee Jun-suk and Inagyan, which will get really, really interesting. But at the same time, a lot of the political pundits are all saying, despite what happens, it's going to take a big hit 
on the uh, the main opposition DP is what they're saying because it's going to split more of the DP votes rather than the ruling PPP votes. Uh, speaking of the elections, uh, starting today, uh, there are a number of things you can't do when it comes to election campaigning, uh, which is 90 days left until the April 10th general elections. Uh, this includes the use of deep fakes. Uh, so tell us more about this. Right, deep fakes have been quite sensational since their arrival with AI technology reaching new levels day by day. But because of deep fakes uh, becoming more and more realistic, there is also the concern of them being misused for fake news and also maybe even crimes. Uh, although, although, of course, I have to say there are very positive aspects of deep fake uh, that can be actually used, you know, for uh, actually to find uh, criminals or I don't know, many many positive things that you can do with deep fakes. But I just want to mention, just because we're talking about the banning of them, it's not like it's all negative. Uh, anyways, uh, deep fakes have also been used in pol- political election campaigns, including in the U.S. as well as Korea before. However, following the passing of a revised bill at the National Assembly last year, starting today, deep fakes will be prohibited in election campaigns 90 days prior to election day. Uh, that includes the act of producing, editing, airing, as well as uploading deepfake materials such as campaign videos. And uh, we saw those before. Uh, we had uh, AI characters of President Yoon Seok-yeol and also former presidential candidate uh, DP leader Lee Jae-myung. Those were used before as well. And uh, there was also deepfake of former President Noh Moo-hyun in DP videos on YouTube, which had led to some controversy uh, as the video was used for uh, the support of uh, DP. However, starting today, also um, not only deepfake, uh, but also book publication events and uh, legislative reportings activities will be prohibited. And with the 90-day countdown for the general elections having started, a situation room for fair election assistance has been launched this Thursday at the government complex in Sejong, and it's run by the Ministry of the Interior and Safety. Yeah, a number of things happened because now we have 90 days left. I believe uh, the PPP have announced that uh, they formed their uh, candidate nomination management committee or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a 10-member committee, and uh, they're really going to start now choosing their candidates. But, uh, you know, going back to the deep fake, right, because you were saying there's a lot of positive uses. And I was the whole time I was going, what what positive things can come out of deep fakes? Mm -hmm. Because nowadays I feel like they're all used for terrible stuff, uh, but there is uh, positive things that you could use. They said you could use deep fake to animate historical photos and footages or allowing influential yeah. figures to give speeches and presentations as if they're in classrooms for educational mm. purposes. It's like pretty cool, right? And I, I think every new like technology that we, you know, have uh, in the field of AI, it's actually always, it starts with a positive mind. So yeah, <laughs> it's just obvious that there have to be more positive aspects to that. Although there's always, if we have something new, there are always those about people who try uh, to know misuse those new technologies. Mm-hmm. I just feel like you need uh, permission first before you start using people's uh, mm. uh, faces and things like that. But uh, there's a lot of scams uh, using deepfakes, but uh, interesting stuff here. Uh, let's move on here. Seoul's top envoy to the UN warning on Wednesday during a UN Security Council session at the UN headquarters in New York that Russia's recent launches of North Korean ballistic missiles into Ukraine 
could encourage the North to start exporting weapons to other countries. Chi, uh, let's get more on this. So during a UN Security Council session on the maintenance of peace in Ukraine, Ambassador Huang condemned the arms transfers between North Korea and Russia as a violation of multiple UNSC resolutions. The White House has revealed that Pyongyang provided Moscow with several dozen ballistic missiles, some of which were used to strike Ukrainian targets. Now, these launches provide valuable technical and military insights to the DPRK, which may encourage them to export ballistic missiles to other countries, further financing their illegal nuclear and ballistic missile programs. And Hwang has accused North Korea of using Ukraine as a test site for its nuclear-capable missiles without any regard for Ukraine's territorial integrity and the safety of its people. He cited experts' assessment that the missiles in question are KN-23, which are capable of delivering nuclear warheads as well. So this poses a clear and present uh, exist, existential threat to South Korea. Uh, one of the missiles flew, flew a distance of 460 kilometers, which is the same distance between a typical North Korean missile launch site called Wonsan and Busan, uh, the largest port city of South Korea. Now, from the perspective of South Korea, this amounts to a simulated attack. And during the UNSC session, Hwang appealed to all members to make an extraordinary effort to curb North Korea's nuclear programs and provocations. And China's deputy representative to the UN, Gan Xiang, was also present at the session and reiterated China's call for calm and restraint with uh, regard to the conflict in Ukraine. And before the council meeting, eight countries, including South Korea, the United States and Japan, released a joint statement. And the statement also condemned Russia's procurement and use of weapons from North Korea, which is a violation of UN Security Council resolutions. And the statement also emphasized that each violation makes the world a more dangerous place. And it also pointed out that a permanent Security Council member who willingly engages in these violations demonstrates a clear exploitation of its position. Again, it's one thing to for North Korea to monetize uh, with the sales of these ballistic missiles, but as Xi mentioned and as uh, the uh, Ambassador Huang mentioned, uh, these launches providing these valuable technical and military insights to North Korea is the big thing because as we talked about, North Korea has only uh, conducted uh, tests, right? Or Although recently they, they used the word drill, uh, missile drill, when they uh, fired the Hwasong-18 intercontinental ballistic missile, but they never used it in real situations. And for them to actually analyze how these missiles work in actual wartime situations at battlegrounds, as you see right now in Ukraine, it is a, a huge opportunity to, for them to to get these uh, technological information. So this is what we're looking at here. Uh, before we move yeah. on, can I just quickly read uh, this me message from Chris Rhodes saying, I saw a video of an old man in a care home got shown a deep fake of his wife in her younger days. That was a nice thing they can do. So here's another... I was going to read that afterwards. But, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so I still think she's hosting the show right now. <laughs> That's, thank you very much for that, Soa. Uh, let's move on here. Staying with the United Nations activities, South Korea submitted written questions ahead of the Universal Periodic Review on uh, China's human rights issues. Uh, so, Soa, what, what is the significance of this? Well, for that, let me first give you some background on the Universal Periodic Review, in short, UPR, which is described as a unique mechanism 
mechanism of the Human Rights Council at the United Nations. On its website, it says that the UPR calls for each UN member state to conduct a peer review of its human rights records every four and a half years. So each member can report on actions to improve human rights situations and also receive recommendations prior to which there will be pre-session reports from other countries. So the fourth UPR on China is slated for the 23rd this month, and South Korea has submitted a set of questions to the UN, according to Seoul's new foreign minister, Zhu Taeyeol, on his first day to work at the government complex this Thursday. He said the contents of the written questions will be soon made public. Also, these uh, remarks will be uttered out at the meeting at the UN later this month. The ministry spokesperson Im Su-seok told a briefing, though, that what is included is a question regarding the refugee application procedures for defectors abroad, including North Korea, meaning China's forced repatriation of North Korean refugees is highly likely to be addressed. So what's significant about the submission of the questions is that it's actually a first for South Korea. Although South Korea has been present at those meetings, it is the first time that they're actually submitting these questions before it. And uh, also at the earlier UPRs on China, Korea was rather passive. Uh, during the liberal Moon Jae-in administration, Korea was silent at the third UPR when the defector issue was raised. And during the conservative Park Geun-hye administration in 2013, there were comments made by the Korean side regarding the abidance of refugee protection and a call on people to follow principles regarding the ban on forced repatriation, but there were no details such as the mentioning of countries like North Korea. Yeah, so it's very difficult because you're looking at two sides, and it's it's. Uh, I think it's important that you mentioned the differences between a conservative administration mm-hmm. and a uh, liberal cons- uh, administration because the stance that the liberal uh, administrations are making is that because all of this, and unfortunately, even if you have all these like human rights meetings, and uh, you know, we talked about uh, uh, human rights issues of North Korea, uh, violations of uh, North Korean human rights being mentioned at the UN Security Council last year as well. Nothing can be done, right? So, like, it's more symbolic in that you are bringing up the issue here and letting the world know this is what's happening. But realistically, nothing can be done is the frustrating thing. So, for the liberal administration standpoint, is that what? You know, why risk, uh, I guess, uh, tainting relations with like countries like China or in the case of, uh, you know, the Moon administration when it comes to North Korea stuff? They're just not going to mention it because they continue to push for peace with, uh, you know, North Korea and things like that. Whereas the the conservative administrations are going, well, even though there are no tangible results that come out, we still need to bring this up here and continue to pressure uh, countries like North Korea, continue to pressure countries like China when it comes to human rights issues. And eventually then they'll succumb to the pressure. But unfortunately, we haven't really seen tangible results. But uh Depending on what you're, uh, I guess, uh, standing, which side you stand on, uh, everyone has their own opinions, right? And just quickly, um, regardless of uh, that we are in a conservative administration right now, uh, South Korea is uh, part of the non-permanent members of the UNSC. So I think that's also maybe why Korea is putting more... uh, 
you know, active action regarding UN-related issues. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on here. Uh, the South Korean d- uh, government decided to provide some three million U.S. dollars worth of humanitarian assistance to Japan's Ishikawa Prefecture uh, over in the Noto Province, I believe, uh, to help the region cope mm-hmm. with the aftermath of that deadly earthquake. Ji, uh, you're going to round this out here. Tell us more about this. Right. So the foreign ministry announced earlier today that the government will provide humanitarian aid worth three million U.S. dollars to the Japanese people affected by the recent earthquake that took the lives of more than 200 people. Now, the government hopes the aid will support the region's quick recovery and a swift return to normal for residents in the affected areas. Now, the death toll from a 7.6 magnitude earthquake that struck the Noto Peninsula and surrounding areas in Ishikawa Prefecture on New Year's Day has climbed to 206 as of this afternoon. And according to Japanese media, the recent earthquake caused the death of 198 people. That's the direct death caused by the earthquake. And in addition to that, eight people died due to the indirect causes such as deteriorating health conditions and fatigue caused by the disasters. A disaster. Now, this makes it the third largest number of deaths caused directly by an earthquake. Uh, and the earthquake that caused the highest number of direct deaths was the Great uh, East Japan earthquake of 2011. And it resulted in more than 1,800 deaths, including Jeez. missing persons. And the cause of death was drowning from the tsunami that followed the earthquake. And the second highest number of deaths was caused by the Great Hanshin earthquake of 1994. Uh, 1995, with over 5,500 deaths. And at that time, many people died due to suffocation and crushing from house collapses. Yeah, so it's through the 1995 uh, Great Hanjin earthquake that uh, you heard about the golden time, right, for the rescue uh, Mm -hmm. after an Mm -hmm. earthquake. And this was like uh, we had the the massive earthquake over in Turkey and like Syria last year and things like Mm -hmm. that. And the golden time that was given is 72 hours. Uh, And that figure, 72 hours, was something that was started through the Great Hanshin earthquake, where they found out that the uh, the probability of survival greatly falls after the 72-hour mark, and so that's that's actually a very uh, I'd hate to put it a historic say historical earthquake, but a lot of people learned a lot through this. Uh, guys, I want to thank you very much for coming in today with your reports. Have a safe rest of the week, and we'll see you guys again. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.